fawns prefer in does, both to give birth and then raising the fawn, that they prefer cover. Mm-hmm. So we can at least give them that sure. cover, whether it makes a difference in whether they fawn, uh, whether they survive or not. I'm, let, I'm, let me let me put yeah. it this way then: what can be done, you know, to, to limit the amount of uh, fawns that coyotes are eating? Do, do we know? Is there anything? No. and there it is the hunter podcast is brought to you by deer grow man it's almost food plot season jared and deer grow is one of those products that has really changed the way that we plant food plots and the success we've seen from them no doubt i've been you know trying to plant food plots my my entire whitetail hunting career a little shorter than yours, but the minute that I started or that I, you know, I realized that I could get deer grow back into some of these remote plots where I couldn't get lime or fertilizer, especially in the 50 pound bag, you know, format. Mm-hmm. So everything was changed. You know, I could get into these spots uh, moving forward with a, with a backpack sprayer and that's since escalated to these 40 or 60 uh, gallon sprayers and we're doing upwards of, you know, five to 10 acre food plots just with deer grow and having phenomenal success. Yeah. And I mean, with the price of fertilizer, lime, diesel, everything this year, I mean, what better way to get in there and grow a successful food plot at about a third of the cost. Check out DeerGrow at DeerGrow.com. And we're back. Hey. Hunter Podcast, as Colty says, episode 72. Um, <laughs> what is it? A lot of pressure to remember that. I know, man. Uh, April 28th today. Yeah. So a few days away from May. Crazy. Flying by, man. Got some more April showers coming here I know. Sunday. I know. See that? About an inch. Mm-hmm. I need to get some. I've got a plot right behind the house that I'm almost ready for to plant. Um, I'm Guess hoping. how much plot prep work I've done. <laughs> Zippo. Nada. I need to get that clover plot in. I haven't touched anything for summer plots yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to get that planted before that rain comes. Um, I think uh, not in lieu of, but it's definitely going to, it's up on the list, is I'm going to make sure that I've got some sites prepped for um, early successional yeah. um, spraying later this October. So, and that means cutting. Yep. You know, so I'm going to choose some sites and I'm going to make sure that those are cut consistently throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to end up spraying those in October, November. Man, it... it and I, we talk about it every year. I'm like, all right, here's my big expectations. And then time just allots for well, some a of these third things, of them. It's like a year at a time. And so yeah. it's like, you know, February, March is usually when I start getting excited about um, management projects again, especially, you know, big ones. Mm-hmm. And I'm like finding out, oh, crap, like I should have been cutting this for the past year. Or I, I should have sprayed this two, three months ago. You know, so the timing is, is so important. And I'm, I've been just, you know missing it so slightly so now this year i'm finally hopefully going to be ahead on that project yep and so that means i'm sacrificing and it's a some, long-term project it's a long-term project i'm sacrificing some early season plots and stuff t- to do that which i think is fine yeah i'm going to end up with maybe some soybean or corn plots depending on price and mm-hmm. availability of my time mm-hmm. and i'm for sure going to have a majority of fall plots yep um brassicas oats Yep. somewhere between you know peas and i'm hoping to get that uh, early successional project done along with that well and i mean i kind of started i deviated least. a little bit i mean my goal this year is still food 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 um you know on my pennsylvania places where i've deviated from that and that you know I, i've got about 500 well i've got about 250 trees left to plant i've got 250 conifers in the ground and at the same time, I've got now an additional acre food plot, which is the one I'm trying to get in this weekend. So I've got two tasks there that typically I wouldn't try to focus on cover and f- adding food in the same year. But 
just how it worked out. Whereas Ohio and Kentucky, I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent focused on just adding food in. Um, but the cool thing about your earlier, early successional piece and my adding, uh, conifers in to provide ground cover is it ties in today's discussion, which is covers critical. Uh, often you and I are talking about cover being critical in terms of mature bucks, um, and being able to make those mature bucks feel safe and keep them around. Um, but what we don't talk about from a 365 standpoint is that cover is critical for fawn recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so today's guest is Dr. John Kilgo um, from uh, USDA, but also the Savannah Riverside is what he's most familiar with and his research on coyotes and deer depredation. Um, and, you know, there's probably nobody listening to this podcast who hasn't encountered some you know, negative thing around coyotes and, and killing deer and killing deer fawns. You know, whether that's a deer you shot and you had to leave it lay overnight and you go up and, you know, it's nothing but, you know, rib bones straight up to the neck. Um, or if you found, you know, pieces of fawn during the sp- late spring and early summer. Or if you're running trail cam pictures. I mean, it's not uncommon 100%. these days to see a coyote running across the screen with yep. a fawn in his mouth. You know? Yep. And in the only, you know, coyotes for sure. And, and you know, John will kind of get into detail here. For us in terms of their actual effects and, and what that looks like from a number standpoint the only other animal that i know puts on that much of an issue is is black bears and obviously that's only isolated to certain areas of the whitetail range um but you know my past research and things that i've done black bears are a, a giant predator of of whitetail fawns mm. um in fact somebody one of the whitetail guys we were talking to the other day he said that one of the um denning sites that they saw that mom brought back like 42 fawns throughout the the year um, back to that denning site. Um, And so giant impact there, but you know, coyotes are the one that, that seemed to be the big issue and, you know, take it back, what, 50 and a hundred years ago. um, They they probably still were an issue, but trapping was so prevalent, Mm. you know, and so many people were trapping that, you know, we, we were keeping them in check in today's standpoint, trapping has all but died. Um, you know, hate saying it cause I love it, but there's not many people that are out there running steel, uh, and more and more people thinking, well, I'm going to go call them in. I'm going to use thermal. I'm going to use night vision, which are, you know, able to harvest coyotes, but to the level of a actual effect on the population, not even close, not even close from an efficiency standpoint. Yeah. Right. So, um, I, I really hope what we get from Dr. Kilgo today is to talk about the effects of coyotes on, you know, mainly on the Savannah River site, but how that's going to be applicable to all of us who own property, who hunt property. Um, and I'm sure he can teach us a lot more than just, you know, the, the coyote aspect, just 100%. fawning in general. You know, what what, what types know. of habitats are they seeing more predation in than others? I mean, that's that's a huge one. Here We're talking about your early succession. I'm trying to plant trees. Like everybody's got different habitat types. And I it, obviously certain fawns are more vulnerable and in, in t- habitat types than others. Yeah. Well, and humans, I'm sure, have a big impact too. You know, I mean, coyotes and black bears are probably rivaled only by a tractor with a brush hog. <laughs> yeah. You and know, vehicles. I, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I hope everybody really kind of tunes in on this one because this is bringing the science of, of coyote research really as it's tied into, um, recruitment from fawns, which ultimately is going to affect your population. And yeah, let's bring in Dr. John Kilgo. Hey, John, how are you? Good. How you doing? Doing good, sir. Well, uh, Jared and I appreciate you jumping on the Hunter podcast with us today. And, um, you know, it's something that we hear a lot from the people listening to this and watching this is, you know, um, 
effects of predation on their property, you know, large and small, Midwest to Southeast to Northeast, um, you know, really doesn't matter where you're at, you know, all of us in some way or another are, are having some sort of predation on our property. Um, and so I, I think just to start, if you could maybe give us a little background on yourself and, uh, the Savannah river site and some of the research, um, I guess, main topics that you're, you're focusing on, and then we can dive in a little deeper from there. Sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, the Savannah river site where I work is a department of energy property. It's about 300 square miles in the upper coastal plain of South Carolina. And I've been here since 97, I guess, at least in my, my current job. And somewhere in the early 2000s, I guess. So I'd been doing a variety of things. I'm a research wildlife biologist. I study generally the effects of forest management on wildlife. That can include deer management and, and deer population studies and, and such. I was doing a variety of things at the time, but in the early 2000s, I, I um, started to need to, to focus on some deer issues here on Savannah River. And I, I guess probably I first started noticing uh, something maybe going on predation-wise on not on Savannah River site, but on a, a property I hunt, which is nearby, um, 1,200-acre lease that that we've been hunting through the 90s and taking a lot of does. Um, at that time, of course, uh, quality deer management philosophies were taking hold, and um, everybody knew they needed to get their herds in, in balance with the habitat and get sex ratios balanced and all that. So we've been hitting the does pretty hard. Came a point, probably 2001, 2002, we couldn't find any does. And I was thinking, we don't have that many deer. We don't have as many as we thought we did. And uh, we used to, but we didn't at that point and wonder what was going on. And so then back to Savannah River, um, looking at what was going on here, which is a very unique situation. We're probably uniquely situated to be able to see what was going on predation-wise because it's a low-density herd. It's intentionally managed mm -hmm. uh, at a low density. And so, and we had a lot of coyotes. Uh, they were still relatively new to the area at the time. And so started wondering what was going on, seeing some things in the way the population was behaving that um, didn't add up with the way that it had used to in terms of how quickly it would recover from a, a heavy harvest, for example. Um, and so I started putting some things together and, and it, it went from there um, as we really started to take a look at coyote food habits and see, yep, they're eating a lot of them. And, um, and then we got into the, the fawn research in, in a bigger way. And, and, and it all wore out. And some of that early stuff, John, was it um, was it more hunter observation data or was it more trail camera data that you guys started to like? Obviously, you know, all of us have gone out to a property and, you know, we expect to see a bunch of deer and, you know, for whatever reason, deer aren't moving. We don't see them. You know, we, we don't see as many as we think, you know, to kind of really bridge or uh, I guess confirm that that idea of something's going on here. You know, was it more observation eyeballs in the field or was it trail cameras that, that started to kind of provide that data for you? Well, of course, this was before trail cameras were really 
very widely available. Mm-hmm. What we first ones we used still had film in them. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would say on I was talking about the property I hunt. That was more eyeballs and personal experience, and just wasn't seeing the sign mm-hmm. tracks and, and other general deer sign. At Savannah River, we're fortunate to have a lot of data, and, and long term, it's one of the most studied deer populations in the world. And so we had recruitment data going back to the 1960s, and we're able to look at that kind of thing and, and see that it it dropped off through the 90s as, as coyotes started to, to really, their numbers started to take off. Gotcha. So there were a variety of things that were different pieces of information that we were able to, to pull together. And I think, you know, for most people that understand kind of, um, say, deer biology at least, you know, the one thing we're kind of taught or informed on is the fact that, you know, these herds um, can bounce back pretty easily, right? If you, let's say you take too many does off a property, you know, typically they can bounce back easy. But what you're seeing down there, what we were seeing is that, you know, the predation, I guess, at that time and assuming it was coyotes, was preventing that herd from being able to bounce back. That's right. And so the specific year or two that, that made the difference there, um, to, to the year 2000, in response to declining harvest, which the cause of which was not understood at the time, um, the decision was made to not shoot does mm-hmm. that year. Buck only hunt. And then the next year, which was 2001, there were no hunts because of 9-11. It's a secure site, uh-huh. energy site and, and so the hunts were canceled that year. So two years of essentially no doe harvest. There were a couple of hunts salvaged at the end of that season, but right. a lot of protection. Well, the previous knowledge we had about this population, it should have doubled with two years of, of no harvest. Um, and it didn't. Hmm. So when in 2002, when the hunts were reinstated, expecting this tremendous harvest and it was up, but it wasn't nearly what was expected. So that was that was really the first kicker that said something's something's changed here. Mm-hmm. We've got something going on mortality wise in this population that we need to better understand. And so at that point, OK, saying something's different, we, we need to figure out what's going on here. What is the thought process there internally then um, on the Savannah River site to say, you know, h- how do we figure this out? Or is it just formulating a bunch of different hypotheses and start testing them? Or, or what's what's kind of the next step there in 2002, 2003? Yeah, we, we basically started thinking about everything that might be going on. Um, we didn't have any reason to believe that there was any big HD outbreak. There, there are no disease problems. Uh, we did look at uh, conception rates and in utero fetal counts um, to see if maybe it was something going on with the habitat that they mm-hmm. just weren't as productive as they had been. No change from historic information there. Um, and then we, we started looking at the predation question, which at the time nobody was concerned about. Right. Most places, not Savannah River, but most places at that time, I had, of course, had too many deer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd sort of, by process of elimination, had ruled out the other obvious possibilities for what might be going on. 
And then when we determined that, yeah, the coyotes are eating a lot of fawns, that was kind of a, a smoking gun, but it didn't prove anything. Uh, we knew the coyote numbers had taken off concurrent with this decline, coincident with this decline. Again, it didn't prove anything, but it was circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we needed to, well, I say the, the food habits didn't prove anything. We knew they were eating them, but we didn't know they weren't just scavenging dead fawn. Sure. Um, so then, then the only way to get at it from a research standpoint was to track fawns, put radio collars on fawns and see if in fact a bunch of them are dying. And if, if they are, why are they dying? What's killing them? And so that, in that next step, were you, um, were you guys just walking through and, and looking for fawns or were you using the, um, actual transmitters? from the doe side that when that fawn drops, that transmitter comes out and you can go and pinpoint. Yeah. And in some parts of the country, you can find enough fawns just by walking, you know, getting a crew of people and, and walking and finding them. But around here, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, not just because of the low density, but just the, the dense cover. Sure. And so, yeah, at the time, fortunately, the, the vaginal implant transmitters had come out. Mm-hmm. So you get the doe in the winter, implant her, and then when the fawn's born, that the, the fawn being born pushes that transmitter out and it gives a different signal. What? Yeah. Um, you, you never heard of those before? No. Yeah. And so that that's because think about it. I mean, a doe has a fawn, you know, it's it's like finding a shed. It's a needle in the haystack type of thing. And so um, were you capturing those uh, deer with rocket nets in the winter? Yeah, we, we use rocket nets some initially, um, but over that turned out to be a seven-year study, and we ended up catching most of them with dart guns. You are. So dart them, sedate them, and then they would implant a transmitter. And so that when the fawn comes out, it pushes that transmitter out. And once it comes out, it starts releasing a signal, which triggers you to say, go find it. Okay. Yep. And okay. then... So it just pushes it out. It's not connected to the fawn. Correct. Just pushes it out. And then it sends a signal, which tells you to go and search that area wow. for the fawns. Very cool. Um, and I guess at that point, John, you, you guys now, assuming that trigger happens, you go out, you find, you know, two fawns in most cases or a fawn, you're now reconfirming um, those conception rates, right? Of, of, you know, we have two fawns that have now hit the ground that we are now collaring. Um, <laughs> so fawns on the between, between now and when they hit six months, that's when we're losing them. Right. And mostly between three or four weeks between birth and it says first first few weeks that are the, the really critical period. So in, in, in that first, um, I guess, first field year of having those fawns um, collared, was it kind of like, a, oh, wow, that you started to see pretty, pretty quickly? Yeah, well, the first year was sort of a, a pilot effort to see if we could. So you got to catch a bunch of these fawns to get a reliable survival rate Mm -hmm. across the population. And when you say a bunch, how many are you you saying in your area? Uh, Preferably 30 or 40 a year. And then for multiple years. Yep. If you can catch 50 or 60, all the better. Wow. Uh, The more you get, the more representative a sample you have of what's going on in the population. Mm -hmm. So that that first year, we just wanted to make sure we could find them, that the technology worked, those implant transmitters and all that. And so we only implanted, uh, we, well, we only caught five fawns. 
four of those five were killed by coyotes. Holy cow. Wow. Well, that was, you know, that's a really small sample size. Maybe there's a correlation between... The fact that you were able to find them, they, they, <laughs> the moms didn't drop them in a good spot or something. Well, that's another question we can talk about. But no, these are um, presumably a representative sample of does. We sure. catch them and we find their fawn. We and so we get a fawn off of almost every doe. Sometimes the transmitter doesn't work right. Yep. We we have the ability to find them no matter how well concealed they are. You know, we're using thermal imaging cameras to, and usually if we get there quickly enough, within six hours or so, they're still at the birth bed Mm -hmm. where they were born. Hmm. Um, So they're not, between the the nature of that sample and the technology that we've got, they're not able to, to do anything to. Yeah outsmartest i guess and how how were you uh, so four fawns died H- how did you know that it was coyote predation or how how did you come to the conclusion that that fawn died from coyote predation versus it died and was scavenged i guess so the um you, you basically you you the co- see where to start the collar has a mortality signal on it okay. so these are old-fashioned vhf collars that you have to go out with an antenna and listen for mm-hmm. when the collar hasn't moved for four hours you can program it for different periods but we were using four hours you assume the phone's dead and so when you hear that mortality signal you go track to the phone the carcass or the collar if there's any carcass left there and when you find the, the carcass then you have to basically investigate to see what look for any sign around um the most telling of which is the way the carcass is cached mm-hmm. hidden by the predator mm-hmm. so here all we've got is bobcats and coyotes yep no, no black bears cats of course will just scrape leaf litter sticks anything they can they just scrape it over the top of it. Mm-hmm. i will actually bury it usually they don't always but they will bury it in the dirt. So hmm. if, if the dirt is disturbed, that's a telltale sign it was a coyote. Interesting. Like a dog digging a bone. Yep. Burying a bone. Um, and then, you know, other things, tracks and scat and other stuff you, you may find around the, the area. Mm-hmm. But because that's not 100% absolutely correct, uh, we also collected um, residual predator saliva from the carcass basically take a q-tip and swab the bite wounds and whether you can see the any wet saliva on it or not it's there mm-hmm. and you can get dna out of that and see who who it was bobcat or a coyote or mm-hmm. whatever it might be interesting and and that always confirmed the field determination so the by field determination I'm talking about the sign that, that was present there sure um so that's pretty pretty good sign in and of itself without having to yeah do the thing. Wow, and so okay, so you've got five samples that year. You you kind of say, all right, we've got a problem. So the next year it expands at this point. Yeah, well that that got people's attention. Yeah, so we got funding from the state and we got funding locally here from Department of Energy and, and Forest Service uh, to do it at a at a bigger scale. And it turned out that that 80% uh, 
mortality rate basically bore out over the seven years. And it was amazingly consistent from year to year. Um, <laughs> look at it in the inverse, the inverse of mortality is survival. So we averaged about 20 to 25% survival uh, across all the phones that we collared. Wow. And it didn't, didn't vary much from year to year. What percentage of the mortality I realize it was, uh, you know, four out of five were coyotes in, in the five that you found the first year, but at a bigger scale, you know, what percentage of fawn mortality is, is coyotes? Well, in this study, so that first year it was a hundred percent, Okay. but across the, the 200 and some odd fawns that we tracked over the course of the seven years, it was about 80%. Holy cow. Coyotes. Coyotes. Bobcats take about 10% and then you've got various miscellaneous other accidents and had one drown. Well, and the- we, we were speculating, I think just as we were introing the podcast here that I would guess that like the human element is as big as coyotes. Like I would think pe- getting run over with a, a brush hog, I, I would say almost as many. Yeah. Or a that vehicle way. in some areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly happens um, out here. I think we only had one fawn that was hit by a car. Um, it's just the, the difference in the landscape sure. here is mostly forested and, and not very, there's a lot of traffic when employees come on and off site every day, but most of the fawns were well away from roads. So they weren't really at risk getting hit by a car. Can, can I ask you, John, does that, you said it's 300 square miles is, is a portion of that farmed or, you know, are there, are there people on it or. There are. Uh, industrial activities that the Department of Energy's main mission here that comprise probably six to eight percent of the land area. Mm. The rest of it is managed forest, not forest. So I guess I I would like just speculate in in an area like where I'm at in Ohio and we have a bunch of coyotes. Mm -hmm. um, I bet a much larger percentage of fawn deaths are from farming activities. Mm-hmm. Like maybe not more than coyotes, but more than the area that John studied. Well, and so I, the the question I was going to kind of follow up on that seven year study there was what were those habitats that you started to see? Because that's the next thing, right? And again, it's I guess it's sample related, but like, did you see certain areas of that property or certain habitat types of that property uh, have fawns? I guess more vulnerable than others. Yeah, the the. What I assumed going in was that fawns that lived in denser cover were going to do better. Yeah, that's what I would think. Whether that was the ground layer or understory, you know. Yep. um, And so we we compared the density of the understory for fawns that lived and fawns that died Mm -hmm. of predation. And there was absolutely no difference. Wow. Which was a real head scratcher. but there was nothing there. And so then we backed out to uh, landscape scale and looked at the, the structure. So there are, for example, there are a lot of utility rights of way out here, power mm-hmm. lines and gas lines and whatnot. Yep. Roads. Um, and, and with uh, the forest management, you get edges with between a clear cut or young plantation and, and older forest. Um, and so what we found then was that ponds with more edge in their home range were more likely to survive. Hmm. Um, we think of coyotes as, and other predators as well, um, hunting edges and they do, but all, all we could conclude was that if there's 
over a threshold amount of edge, it's just too much for them to hunt. And so fawns with a lot of edge did better than fawns in contiguous, extensive open or uh, closed canopy forest. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you know, when you start thinking about the predation on the fawns, you know, the, the first things I think of, um, and a lot do is like, you know, you talk about, I guess, like a fawn being scentless, right. Being able to avoid predation by not having scent on it. Is that or true? It's what you hear. I don't know. Well, they can't be completely scentless. Yeah, can't be true. But they do. The, the doe in particular minimizes scent by the way she grooms them. When they're when they're really young, she consumes their waste. So, and they move their bed from time to time, um, so they don't concentrate scent in a certain area. But yeah, I mean they're an animal; they got some mm-hmm. scent. And then you talk about what is it, the brachycardia that essentially they can slow their heart rate extremely low um, to potentially Chris Angel, yeah, to eventually <laughs> to basically you know avoid that predation, you know. And so those are you know, internal defenses essentially against predation. And yet here we are still saying 80% of the fawns we find dead are from coyotes. What, regardless of, of cover even, you know, so again, you talk about ultimate predator, like these coyotes are finding these fawns. seems like no matter where they're at. Yeah. And and we don't have any idea how they're finding, you know, you you may hear a, a story of somebody observing a coyote taking a fawn but again, that's, that's more anecdotal. We don't see these fawns that we have collared very often. And we certainly don't see the actual predation event itself. So whether the coyote is sniffing them out in their bed or doing something, following the doe, keying on some behavior that she's mm-hmm. leading him to the, the coyote to the fawn, uh, we don't know how, how they find them or whether they just get lucky and stumble on them in their bed. Um, and and that would be, I think, important information, at, at least if there was something we could do to, to mitigate uh, their strategy. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Hoyt Archery. Dude, where would we be without our Hoyt bows? Probably shooting crossbows. Or, or a Matthews. <laughs> yeah. One in the same. Yeah. But in all seriousness, we love being Hoyt guys because you stand out. When you're in this room full of other people that shoot these other types of bows, I feel like the Hoyt guys just stick out. Dude, it's just a legit bow. I mean, especially that carbon riser, man. I mean, I I know that they've got several other aluminum lines as well. But for for me, I'm shooting that RX-5 in the carbon model. They've since come out with the RX-7. And uh, I can't tell you how much I love being a Hoyt guy amongst a sea fork of Matthews guys. So we're out there, I think, proving them wrong, shooting 80 pounds and, uh, you know, killing stuff. Hey, man, if you want to get serious, get Hoyt. I think like it's it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of like a, a wild animal, but like we do this for mature bucks when we're hunting. You know, you see them stand there to see them stand there and stare at you to try to figure something out for oh, yeah. what seems like an impossible, like an eternity. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're like waiting and we're shaking. Same is true for for coyotes. All the only thing that these deer have to do, or that these coyotes have to do, is is survive. Survive. That's the only they're not worried about oh, i have this thing at later on i gotta check the emails they just survive survive that's all they do so these coyotes are just constantly hunting yeah and these these fawns are just constantly yeah. tr- you know trying to survive well and that I, that's i guess where my curiosity is is if you think about the coyotes like what is what now almost becomes the hunting behavior 
of these coyotes. So, this is a good time for this. <laughs> this is just my anecdotal, I guess, my, my observation that my parents own uh, a good chunk of ground in eastern central Ohio, and it's, you know, it's okay deer hunting, but it, it's great summer habitat. You know, we have a lot of deer there in the summer, um, and I think for the same reason, that habitat is consistent with we have a lot of fawns. Um, it, it's a lot of, you know, old pasture, you know, and, and the grass will grow, whatever, however tall mm-hmm. in, in the summer until it gets cut later on. And so we see lots of fawns. And so in our situation, we have a lot, I see a lot of coyotes. Almost every time I go out, I see a coyote or two. Mm-hmm. And we also have a lot of deer, um, too many in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And we try to sh- do both. We try to shoot coyotes and we try to shoot does. Mm. You know, and our research is obviously not as scientific as, as it could be. Um, but I, I would speculate that it's because we have so much uh, summer summer habitat, fa- you know, fawning habitat that, like, they're able to do. The coyotes just can't. There's such vast open fawning habitat, you know, tall tall grass type of setups that that's mm-hmm. where we find them. That I just, they don't, they can't possibly find them all. Yeah, I would assume that's it, John, right? I mean, that's the key is that essentially... There needs to be, uh, you know, a certain number of fawns that hit the ground at any given time, and some of those will be vulnerable. They're all vulnerable to predation, but eventually the coyotes can only eat so many of them, and the other ones get past that critical mark of being able to have some escape. Yeah, that's the idea we talk about in terms of predator swamping, um, where you you concentrate the, the rut and therefore the fawning season where they're all hitting the ground at once and, and predators can only take so many. Yep. I would, I would point out that if you've ever been in a Southeastern river swamp where it's thick switch cane and saw palmetto or, or a smooth palmetto, there's plenty of cover out there. And it's, it's every bit as much a needle in the haystack, a fawn living in that is in a, a vast hay field. The interesting thing that we don't really have much of an explanation for is that in that area that you're talking about, well, throughout the Midwest and and a lot of the Northeast, predation rates are really pretty low. Um, It's the South and particularly the Southeast where we've seen these really high predation rates. And why that is, maybe there's a lot more mice in those fields for coyotes to to live on. Um, I've noticed that too. There's tons of mice. Whatever the cause predation isn't isn't that big a deal in in that part of the world it's interesting that you say that i driving around our property i've often thought man it would be so easy to be a coyote there's mice everywhere yeah well i think what's what's kind of I, I could just run up and catch them you talk about i've got bit before yeah the predator swamping <laughs> aspect of it is that you know my experience was living in mississippi for four or five years um you know but i would see in certain parts of mississippi there were you know I'd see bucks breeding does in November and I'd still see bucks breeding does in February. Um, you know, and so if you think about that, there's fawns hitting the ground then from, you know, June to September. And because it's so spread out, you know, essentially those, I would say that those coyotes can eat more fawns during the fawning season because the fawning season is longer in that area. Um, and I, and I don't think we see that as much in the Midwest and Northeast where because of weather conditions and stuff, you know, most of our fawns like here in Pennsylvania or Ohio are dropping May, June, and maybe you get a trickle into early July, but very few. Is, is that the case though? Because like they're not breeding any slower because there's few, 
there's fewer does. They just have to expand the time that they're breeding because there's more of them. So you're still going to have just as many well, but for a longer period of time. That's the age-old question of the Southeast is like, is it genetics that are driving this spread out? Uh, I call it a trickle rut down there that, you know, there's breeding in November and there's breeding clear till February or is the buck to doe ratio so out of whack that, you know, does are getting missed oh. and they're coming back into cycle every 28 days. I guess I'm assuming the second is true. Is that I didn't realize that was up in terms of debate. buck to doe ratio. Mm -hmm. Well, there's genetic issues too. Like if you look at a state, I don't, I don't know if John South Carolina is like that, but I know Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, those long um, states essentially. You know, in the the northern part, it may be breeding in mid November, and the southern part, it's February. Oh, I see. Yeah, the Gulf Coastal states have have that later rut that, like you say, is December, January, February. Mm -hmm. Here, and and most of Georgia actually except for western southwestern georgia it's more along the lines of what you see throughout the rest of the country so mm -hmm. it's it really kicks in mid-october peaks and late october early november and it's is done in early december for the most part mm -hmm. here um we get some breeding as early as early september the, the earliest fawn in that study that we had born was born on april 1st holy cow most of them are not until late may mid 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 to late May is the peak. Yeah, um, which is what you see in yep. in a lot of the, the rest of the country. I, I wonder. Um, I don't think the area that you study there is necessarily b between either of those of those two. Um, you mentioned the Gulf Coastal states is where mm -hmm. they have the late rut. I wonder how the coyote populations are affected by that. Like if the ones that are on the verge, if they if they travel, like they fawn here, they move, and then they move to where the fawns are at. Mm -hmm. Good question. We did a study in Louisiana, um, northeast Louisiana, I think, and but there were black bears there, mm -hmm. and so bears, coyotes, and bobcats all mm -hmm. did their short damage on on the fawn crop. Yeah, uh, you know they've been there a little bit longer. Coyotes moved eastward across the continent. Um, uh, it, it's, I don't know what's going on in, in different parts of the range in terms of their learning ability mm -hmm. over time or, or the ability of deer to, to adapt to it. But I mean, I guess that of that here, yeah, the, the, the feeling is though, okay. So now all right, we, we understand that, you know, these coyotes are, are having a, a huge impact on the herd. I would assume the same thing is now that there's a positive impact if, if depending on how you look on the coyote populations, right? I mean, cause if they've got, if they're consuming all this food and being an efficient predator, you would think that these populations of coyotes along with, you know, we kind of opened this up, John is, you know, we're not living in the 50 to hundred years ago when trapping was so prevalent that, you know, a lot of us did it, you know, it's, it's almost a, an obsolete thing anymore to run into trappers out there. Um, you know, how have these coyote populations now exploded in, in many parts of the country, which then obviously is putting even more pressure on, on the fawn recruitment? Well, they moved in, you know, depending on where you are, they were, like I said, they're moving eastward. So they were in Georgia before they were in South Carolina, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but when they showed up in South Carolina, they, in a matter of 10 years, had covered the state. Every county had coyotes, and then their numbers went up. They've peaked probably 10 years ago, and 
more or less stable, stabilized numbers wise across across the state of South Carolina. Um, we have here uh, the sale of live coyotes is legal. Um, they try, so it basically created a market, whereas the, the fur doesn't draw any or bring any money worthwhile anymore, at least relative to northern mm-hmm. furs. Um, you can sell a live coyote to a uh, running pen where they chase them with dogs in the big enclosures. And at one time you could get close to a hundred dollars or, or more for a live coyote. So that wow. created a market. Um, I think there are a few other states that, that have that. So there, in some places there is a fair amount of, of trapping of coyotes. Um, but yeah, you're right. For the most part, trapping is, hmm. is going away. And, <clears throat> um, but nevertheless, the, there's only so many that, that are going to be able to, to, be on the landscape that their social organization mm-hmm. is somewhat limiting um you know a, a dominant or an alpha breeding pair is only going to allow so many others in their territory and so you get more transients moving across the area and that's why when you trap a coyote out or shoot a, a, a breeder another's going to come right in almost immediately and take that space hmm. um, but that's kind of a, a self regulating uh, or whether it's that or anything else the, the resource available to them uh there are only so many that are, are going to be able to persist yeah you've got that sponge effect if if you have the resources you remove one another can move in easily so you know in, in a case like savannah river where all right now you've you've ob- observed this 80 percent mortality caused by coyotes um did you guys look at any uh removal or habitat improvements i mean how are you now saying all right well we want to counter this or we want to we want to f- change this because obviously our recruitment's only 20 percent um what kind of activities have you all looked at well the short answer is reduce the harvest particularly of does mm-hmm. um, is the what is sustainable now is about a quarter of what historically was taken from the deer population here. Um, Deer management is not the goal here. In fact, I I said this is a unique place. Um, The objective of of the deer hunts here is to keep the population down in order to minimize the number of deer vehicle accidents because of all the employees, 10,000 people coming on and off site every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's all safety driven and and managing for a quality herd or, or big bucks is is not the objective. Um, and so if coyotes help out with it, then the powers that be don't care. Uh, but one artifact of, just as an aside, uh, the way that the hunts are structured here, um, a lot of it is, is dog drive hunting and they hunt one unit or any given unit is only hunted once a year. Hmm. So if the deer survive and there are a lot of dogs running around out there that day but if they can survive that gauntlet they make it for another year unless they get hit by a car and so the, the buck well the, the deer age structure is, is very good and there are a lot of really old deer out here and therefore a lot of really big deer out here so it's a um, desirable place to to draw to hunt but it's not intentionally managed to do anything other than control the numbers Interesting. 
I mean, if you're looking at that from a from a standard situation, I guess, you know, we hear it a lot. People will say, well, you know, I've got coyotes are, are killing all my fawns and their instant um, pull is to go out and try to shoot them. Right. I mean, and it seems logical, but from an efficiency standpoint, I mean, uh, anybody that's actually gone out and called coyotes at night and hunted coyotes, it, it's not it's not efficient. It's it's extremely labor intensive to, to go out there and remove some coyotes off a of property. And you, you've got to remove so many that it's just almost impossible to to do it at a scale that will have any effect on. So I guess to more directly answer your question earlier, the last three years of that project, we did trap coyotes and, and tried to remove as many as we could. Hired professional trappers to do it. And we took out a lot of coyotes and then looked at how fawn respond, fawn survival responded. Um, and in spite of taking out more than we thought were even there to begin with, um, one year we got a bump and survival, not as much as we, we had expected, but it, it improved the next year after taking out more coyotes, it was as if we hadn't done anything at all. It was back to that baseline 20, 25% survival. And then after the third year of again, taking out more coyotes, it was sort of intermediate. So the conclusion there is that it took a tremendous amount of money and effort and manpower to remove a lot of coyotes three years running. And the response was inconsistent. Holy cow. Roughly how many, how many coyotes were you guys taking out? Um, the total was 475, I think. In the first year? No, that was total. Over three now, years? that's not off of all 300 square miles. That's off of about, well, it was three areas, each of which were about 8,000 acres. So a total of, let's say, 25,000 acres. Okay. Wow. And that's four to five coyotes per square mile that were removed Holy uh, cow. each year. And, and not bump it. So, I mean... Literally, in in that sense, after seeing that, the only way to continue to increase a deer population, if that's the desire, is don't shoot as many deer. Well, that's weird, though. Like, because doesn't that conflict with, um, you know, the finding that eighty percent of the mortality is because of coyotes? Like, well, it, it would seem to, but the problem is, as many as we took off, we didn't get them all. And the ones that we didn't get were probably the oldest, smartest ones that are the most experienced hunters, fawn hunters. Um, but on top of that, you get more coyotes moving in all the time. Like I said, just you take one out and another one's going to, or three are going to take its place. And so they were, the numbers recover so quickly that the, the coyote caused predation was still there. So it wasn't 80%, but it was still um higher than than you would expect having removed so many coyotes so now there are cases where um people have done it over the long term you know year in year out and they've got the means to to do it right and you can see a benefit um but it's it is beyond the means of most landowners yeah. certainly somebody hunting on a couple hundred acres so, so i assume it's it's probably a little bit of both but like would you assume that 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 those two things w- are indicating that one either a small 
percentage of the coyote population is extremely effective at hunting or that the place of the coyotes that you're harvesting are getting filled very quickly from surrounding areas? Well, certainly the latter. And, and we demonstrated that with um, the various genetic testing of, of the animals that, that came in that the next year they weren't related to the, <clears throat> the animals that we took out the first year. Hmm. Interesting. Um, as far as how many of them are participating, um, we don't know, but I, I think it, it, the breeding pair are the most motivated because they've got to feed their pups. Mm -hmm. They're all hungry, but the breeding pair tends to be older and therefore more experienced. Another thing we saw, by the way, was that talking about this long fawning season, um, fawns born after the midpoint of the season were pretty much toast. Really? The later you're born, the lower your chances of making it. And in the North, that's because you're not going to be big enough come wintertime and right. grocery aren't going to support you. Well, here you don't even get to the winter because coyotes get you. When, um, when is the coyote breeding season? So when, when is that like January, that breeding February. pair, I guess, like when is she pregnant, you know, thinking that she's got to go through gestation and she's got to consume as much. And then eventually when the pups are born for nursing, is that overlap? Well, February is breeding peak breeding. It's January to March, but, and then their gestation is like a dog. It's about two months. Okay. Days, I think. Um, so they're born, pups are born on average in April. And then they're whelping or, or coming out of the den at early June, and which is right after the, yep. the peak of the fawn drop. So, yeah, and, and they're, she's feeding herself and them right. while they're in the den. Yep. But yeah, that's, it coincides. So those, those two, those two peaks basically collide in that we've got, you know, most of the fawns hitting the ground at the same time she's in den nursing pups. And then when those pups come out of den, now we're hitting that latter half of the breed of the fawning season and probably why most of those fawns are toast. Hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. So, so here I've got a question and consequent observation on my place. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's uh, we got a lot of livestock in our area as well, and a lot of cows die. Mm -hmm. And there's constantly, you know, I'll see a dead cow in a field. I wonder, you know, if a coyote has a, you know, an alternative food source to fawns, like a dead cow mm, for scavenging. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you think that would improve your fawning your success rate? Well, the the coral that we have here on on Savannah Riverside is wild pigs, which are the subject of a control program that leaves a lot of pig carcasses in the woods. Mm -hmm. And there's, you find a lot of hog hair in mm -hmm. coyote scat, and yet they're still killing fawns. Actually, the number one food item in their diet during summer on into the fall is fruit, soft mass. Fawns are number two. Hmm. Coyotes, so, their number one is soft mass? Coyotes eat yeah, a lot of, you know, blackberries and wow. blueberries, wild plums, and then, you know, get on into late summer and me persimmons and muscadines start yep. whatever plant is fruiting at that time of year. Interesting. But they need the protein. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you would you would think, you would hope, I guess, that if they did have a cow carcass or a hog carcass, that that would fill them up. But it doesn't seem to, to divert them away. Do coyotes eat, like, corn and soybeans? I mean, if they're eating soft mass, do they eat ag crops? I think they do. We didn't really have any available here. I haven't ever seen that as a important. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, they're I, omnivores, but. I mean, I see them in soybean fields all the time, yeah. pushing deer out. Well, I mean, it, it, it becomes, you go back to that, like, early successional growth and stuff in the Midwest and the Northeast. You know, in a lot of those areas, you've got really good stands of, you know, black raspberry or blackberry and things like that that probably help at least to curb the diet a little bit. Versus some of these old growth areas that, I mean, there's nothing to eat on. And I mean, the deer don't have anything to eat, you know, six feet and under. So the coyotes surely don't either, except for rodents and fawns. I mentioned that that second year of trapping where we saw no benefit to fawns from the trapping. One purely speculative explanation for that was that it was a real dry year, dry summer, and there was pretty much a bust on the soft mass crop. Mm-hmm. There were no blackberries out there. And so did fawns sort of take it in the pants because sure. they were extra hungry? Um, you know, there's a very different nutritional uh, value between a blackberry and a fawn, but um, <laughs> if, if they're hungry, then... They're hungry. I've never heard it. But <laughs> if that way full, before. <laughs> um, so... John, are in any of the pine areas on on Savannah Riverside, are you guys doing prescribed burns and still like in that new regrowth and stuff? We're still not seeing differences in in essentially, you know, survival because of better early successional habitat. Yes, to the burning. There's a lot of burning done here, um, and no, it doesn't seem to. Wow, make a difference. It's crazy. I mean, because there's a ton of money. Um, spent by a, if you would encounter people who hunt, you know, a big lease or own big property or whatever, you know, they would say that they put a, an absorbent amount of effort into controlling in quotes, the coyote population to, to increase their deer population. Um, and most of those guys are probably killing, you know, half dozen, maybe a dozen at the most, you know, per year over the course of, you know, 10,000 acres um via guns which are very labor intensive and thermals um but in in their minds no doubt they will tell you it's making a difference but i would assume that if they actually looked at the research it did it you know scientifically there will be no no research to support that they're actually having an effect well and there have been a couple of other studies that have looked at predator control or, or coyote control in particular and, and whether it benefited fawn survival and, and the results are as inconsistent as, as what I said we saw here. Hmm. Um, some years you can do some good, but there's certainly no guarantee. There is a guarantee it's going to take a lot of time and effort and money to do it. So hmm. uh, it's not a safe bet. That, that being the case from like uh, somebody who's trying to, to manage for their deer herd, um, it seemed like a, a better use of time to invest in habitat improvements, like you know, providing additional food sources that, you know, may provide cover for fawns and, and potentially also food for coyotes, like plant apple trees. Yeah. I would say there's, there's no 
we know that deer need food to eat. We know that, that we can supplement that either through planting an apple tree or, or burning and mm-hmm. timber stand improvement to let more light hit the ground and stimulate the understory. Um, we don't know that that's going to translate into more fawn surviving. Um, like I said, there was no correlation between the amount of cover available to a fawn and, and whether it was going to make it or not. Um, but we do know that, that fawns prefer and does both to give birth and then raising the fawn, that they prefer cover. Mm-hmm. So we can at least give them that sure. cover, whether it makes a difference in whether they fawn, uh, whether they survive or not. I'm, let, I'm, let me, let me put yeah. it this way then. What can be done, you know, to, to limit the amount of uh, fawns that coyotes are eating? Do, do we know? Is there anything? No. <laughs> and there it is. It, you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about it, it, it'll take the side of early successional habitat work, whether it's prescribed burning or doing old field management. The one thing that I think we probably are confident in is if we increase those areas in early successional habitat or old fields, we likely increase the amount of other sources of food, whether it's blackberries and stuff, or in my opinion, it's, you know, moles, voles, rabbits, things that prefer that early successional type growth um, to then, again, try to offset um, the pressure on just the fawn population. Now, whether that actually makes a lick of difference or not, who knows? But, you know, I would assume, like, if there's a bunch of rabbits and moles and voles running around in, you know, early successional habitat, you know, they've got just as much of a chance to get eaten as the fawn does, and maybe they're easier to catch. I don't know. Well, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about, um, like, hunting habits of, of coyotes, like, is it purely situational? Like, they're just up and cruising? Like, I assume they're not specifically seeking out fawns as much as they are just cruising known travel routes and happening upon food, whether it's mm-hmm. a fawn laying there or, like you said, carcass or rabbit or whatever soft mass whatever yeah mm-hmm. yeah i wish we knew more about that we know that they're coursing predators meaning that they they're not ambush predators like bobcats yeah um, but i don't think that they they don't these two week old fawns and one week old fawns that they're getting they're not running them down but the, those fawns are in the hiding they're happening upon trip. them yeah. yeah um now whether they happen on them while the fawns up nursing and, and they see the doe and go to that or they find them in the we don't know yeah uh, but yes they are probably uh, that's how, that's how i usually find fawns is there's a doe acting weird yeah and you know it's I'm like there. oh she's the hunter podcast is brought to you by stealth cam dude where would we be without our cell cams i would definitely be divorced at this point <laughs> yeah i hear that <laughs> i mean the fact is is i spent more time checking cameras than i actually did hunting prior to cell cameras now at least my wife can enjoy me being in the comfort of my own home buried in my phone checking those pictures yeah 100 percent. and dude when it comes to uh trail cameras and definitely cell cameras reliability is i think the number one thing that we're looking for yeah, I mean, there's nothing else. We've tried them all. They make there's other companies that make good cameras, but We've the fact tried them all. is, yeah. is they all fail um, at some point. We have had such great success on a big variety. I mean, you and I ran over 30 cameras, cell cameras last year with Stealth Cam, and we hardly had any issues whatsoever. And the issues that we did have were probably self-inflicted. So, yeah. in terms of reliability, there's not a better camera on the market than Stealth Cam. Whether has anybody about- has anybody started to look at? Um, 
collaring uh, coyotes, I guess, and and looking at their travel routes and behaviors and home ranges and stuff? Yeah, there have been quite a few telemetry studies of coyotes. Mm -hmm. And we're learning more and more about them. Um, Habitat use and movements and uh, this business of the, the dominant breeding pair versus transients moving across the landscape. And um, so, yeah, th- there's a lot known about that. And of course, out West where you can sit on one ridge and watch the coyote forage on the other ridge, um, we know a lot about coyotes and, and how they, they hunt there. What we don't know is where we can't see them here in the densely forested East. Um, are those hunting methods the same? Or right. They doing something different because they they're very smart they're very adaptable they've they've clearly been successful um if it takes something different a, a different strategy then they may well have figured that out mm-hmm. we're not sure what that looks like coincidentally my wife just texted me and found uh what's left of a rabbit from right behind the house at our woods. And we've got a ton of red fox, like they're all over my trail camera. So, and the red fox have killed our chickens in the past. So I assume that's what got that rabbit, mm. but it's like, you know, just a tufts of fur here and there. And all that's right. all so that left. begs another question is I've heard time and time again that like, you know, where you find coyotes, you're not going to find fox because they run them off or they eat them or whatever. And I'll tell you, that's not the case at our farm at all. I yeah. see a lot of coyotes and a lot of fox and a, and a lot of does. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what's really interesting when you get into it, um, you, you know, and, and this is probably different, John, where, where you're at versus as we move into, let's say the upper Midwest or even in the New England states, you know, I, I hear in, you know, it's hunter observation, right? So immediately you have to t- intake that there's bias in the observations that are happening. But you hear, um, you know, people talk about um, packs, hunting packs of coyotes, not wolves, of coyotes, um, you know, taking down adult deer late in the winter time and, and things like that. So I, I guess when you get back to those those behaviors, those hunting behaviors of, of coyotes, you know, I, I mean, first of all, any of us who have ever seen a coyote, whether we're in a tree stand or whatever, you watch that coyote work woods and I mean, they cover a ton of ground quick, you know, and at all times, like all senses on full alert. Um, and I've seen and found, you know, uh, usually probably uh, a struggling six month old fawn in February or March that probably was worn down to nothing. And you see the coyote tracks and then you start finding blood and eventually you find the carcass, right? It, it took it down. So, you know, I would assume it's situational and, and probably because of the way that that coyote um, breeding gestation and then eventually, you know, having the pups intersects with that fawning side. I mean, the fact is, is the the more you can either swamp um, that time frame with fawns on the ground, or um, somehow you know drop fawns earlier or later to get away from that, which isn't really necessarily possible. You're not going to move the uh, you know anatomy and biology of a whitetail to shift it one way or the other. You know, it really comes down to you. you if you want more deer on your property, you either have to not shoot as many. Uh, so there's more does and then hopefully have a tighter, uh, fawning season so that it drops as many as possible in that time frame. You're still going to lose a bunch, but hopefully more made it through versus a trickle of them dropping. All right. So here's the, the wrench in your plan. The way to get a smaller breeding pen is to shoot more does. You're right. Or shoot less bucks. Yeah. 
I guess. It, it's true. I mean, it, you know, the, the hard part about it is, and, and obviously it's, it's, uh, it's not a one size fits all, but you know, John, you talked about QDM, uh, QDM and, and that, that mindset of, of balancing the herd and, you know, take, taking does off and letting bucks get older. Um, you know, that, that in itself is, is all well and good, especially if we're trying to balance, you know, the buck to doe ratio. Um, but there are properties, and especially if you don't communicate with your neighbors that are probably harvesting way too many does because you don't know what neighbor A is doing and neighbor B is doing. Um, and because of that, you well, know, you've shot a ton of them and you, your herd can't rebound as if uh, we're all bred to think that that herd can bounce back quickly. And the fact is, is if you've got an intense coyote population in that area, it won't. Yeah, it's it's going to take longer anyway. It it can, um, but when you're just not making that many more fawns a year, not adding mm-hmm. any, and especially if you're still shooting some does, um, it's just going to take longer. Hmm. But you can get there. It's a matter of balancing what you're you're taking and and what's being added through this, those fawns that do survive. Um, and of course it's hard to know that without yeah. study, but you can through camera surveys and looking at lactation rates and things like that, you can get a sense of how low you might be in terms of survival mm-hmm. recruitment. Um, you know, that the evidence for our ability to shrink the, the rut basically by balancing the sex ratio is not real strong. That's exactly what I was going to ask. And so in some places and in, in the right conditions, it'll work, but there's, there's no guarantee that we can shrink the rut there and, and thereby shrink the fawning seed. The only thing that's completely in our control is the trigger. Mm-hmm. If we back off on, on shooting does, then more does are going to make it through the winter. More fawns are going to be born the next year. Even if the same number of them are going to, the same percentage of them are going to die if more of them hit the ground, then more of them are going to make it through. And yeah, it might take a, a while. It might take longer than it used to take. Um, but you can get there eventually. I think your statement or, or your findings about taking out large number of coyotes and seeing how little that affected coyote numbers the following year and consequently, you know, survival, survival rate. Yeah. That begs the question, is the same true for, for deer, you know, does our harvest of them, is it essentially irrelevant? You know, do they just, do they just move in from other areas or do they get replaced? Can you have an impact on the number of them and and therefore Hmm. the breeding cycle? Well, obviously we did at one point when back early part of the 20th century, when there were no deer around Mm -hmm. and then after restocking, we had too many deer through the seventies, eighties, nineties, and we used to say back then we can't kill enough of them but now <laughs> with this additional mortality source yeah it spawns we can over harvest yeah and that's that's what we've seen in in numerous places we thought we needed to take keep taking does and keep, keep taking does and mm-hmm. oh we took too many because we didn't know the fawn tournament right so, so there is a difference then between coyotes and deer in that sense, because we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to kill as many coyotes as possible. 
and it's not having the f- same effect as when we tried to kill as many deer as possible. I would assume it's because the landscape level of deer harvest versus the landscape level of coyote killing harvest. Well, yeah, but John's doing it on 300 square acres. Mm-hmm. That's pretty big. And it's still sucking them in from around. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about it is, um, you know, so if, if you want to keep, let's say you're happy with your deer population and assume um, you've got a 20% survival rate, which isn't the case in all areas. There's could some go, areas. Go that, for five or 10 more booners. But yeah, this, yeah. There's, you know, in Midwest or Northeast, there's, it, maybe it's a little bit higher. Um, you know, you can remove what 20% of that population and assuming next year your population won't change because you will have added 20% fawns back into it. Right. Sure. So I, I think what, what ends up being tricky is like, as you move into some of these areas, let's take our area here in, in, um, Pennsylvania, you know, we've got a, probably a very large impact by coyotes, bobcats, some, and then black bears on top of that. About mountain you know, it, yeah, right. And the vehicles. Uh, I mean, the the question is, John, do you think that the predators in that case, when you add black bears or whatever into it, and this is just a generalized thing, not necessarily a specific case, do you think that they're taking more fawns or they're taking about the same amount of fawns? It's just divided up amongst the predators proportionally. The latter. The yeah. latter. So they're not. That, like we probably don't have less than a twenty percent survival rate. It's just those eighty percent are consumed between black bears, so, bobcats, and coyotes, not just one predominantly. Right. That Louisiana study I mentioned, where bears and coyotes and bobcats were all mm-hmm. taking them, roughly the same survival rate. Studies in in Minnesota and Upper Peninsula, Michigan, where you got wolves on top of those other three, mm-hmm. still, they're not taking any more. Overall, they're just dividing them up. Mm-hmm. That right there, c- compared with some of the things you said earlier, I think points to the fact that some fawns, not uh, I'm sure intentionally, but some fawns or some does that are having those fawns are doing something right. Like the ones that are surviving, what are they doing right? Because, you know, because it's not just coyotes, it's not just people. You're saying like you're saying regardless of more than regardless draw, regardless of how many there are or mm-hmm. or how many different species of predators there are, there's X percentage that will survive. What are those ones doing right? Well, they may not be doing anything right. They may just be the numbers that the predators can't get to. The predators are satiated, but I think there are some things we're starting to to see some things. Um, so I just finished analyzing some data that I, I presented at that deer study group um, back in February that shows that some does, some individual does are more successful year in and year out than others. And it doesn't have to do with how old they are. They're, it's not that they're learning uh, how to be a better mother as, as they get more experienced. Um, some of them their first year, they successfully raise a fawn. And others that are seven, eight years old have twins and lose them both every year. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they doing right? We don't know. But we, we have another study right now, uh, a graduate student at Clemson, uh, Mike Mothersbaugh, has does and fawns collared. And he's looking at uh, the behavior of the does and how, they, how often they come to feed the fawn 
how far away they stay from the fawn, mm-hmm. what time of day they come. And, and he's starting to see some differences. This is preliminary. He's still working sure. on it. But there do seem to be some behaviors that lend themselves to helping the fawn make it. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, we, we looked at it more in captive animals when I was at Mississippi State, but most of those deer had wild origins, meaning we had captured them from the wild, then we had placed them in, in individual research pens. And there would be certain ones like um, we had a really bad EHD outbreak in 2007, I believe. Um, and we lost a lot of um, does when they were still nursing fawns. And we would see just certain does actually call it adopt or take in those abandoned fawns and start nursing them as their own. Um, you know, we'd, we'd have other fawns, especially, or I'm sorry, we'd have other does, especially yearlings, ones that would be the first year of having a fawn that almost seemed like they completely abandoned their fawn and we'd find their fawn dead. Like they, they just, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, you know, and so I'm sure just like anything, there's individual variation there. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's ever been research around it, but you know, I've often heard like it, it's rare, but it can happen that, that does will have triplets, right? I've seen a lot of people say, you know, that oftentimes if you see a doe with triplets or even quadruplets that, you know, that doe may have picked up those fawns from another doe that, you know, essentially wasn't caring for them. Um, so I, I think you will I've see seen that. that. I've seen does with three fawns. Well, yeah. And I mean, it can happen naturally, but, but oftentimes like doe gets hit by a car that fawns abandoned, maybe another fawn picks it up. You know, I'm sure just like any animals, there's, you know, you see it with dogs, there's a motherly instinct there that, that ends up kicking in. Um, you know, but I, I agree. I, I think that in, it's hard to tease apart, right. When you're actually looking at the research data, but you know, there are probably certain does in certain areas that know how to take care of their fawn and where to take them to avoid predation. Does that mean that they avoid it a hundred percent of the time? No, I'm sure they lose fawns, but I'm sure the ones, those old wise does probably are very successful at trying to raise them, but who knows? So you just said, that's what you just said. There's seven, eight year old does that are losing them every year. I know it's crazy. There is, there's gotta be something to it. You know what I mean? There's, Mm-hmm. there's a reason that there's a certain percentage that are successful despite, but it may not be the, I, I would assume that, um, so John, did you, I, I would guess that when you captured a doe, um, and put one of the VITs in that doe, you weren't doing that on multiple years on the same doe likely, right? Yeah, we did have several does. You did. Um, not as many as we'd like, but there yep. were 20 or so that we monitored over multiple years. Okay. So we knew whether they successful or not and and, and were there any trends 20, there yeah that's what i'm saying so about two-thirds of them were either consistently successful or consistently failed um hmm. about half and half hmm. and then that other third it was just sort of a mixed bag one year they'd get it right and yep. the next year they would or vice versa so you're right there's no guarantee that sure a smart a generally successful doe mm-hmm. is is gone have her fawn make it every year but there's a chance did you witness those uh did you witness like any of those does laying fawns in the same area did you pinpoint specific areas that were successful at sheltering fawns from year to year no i mean they they have them in somewhere in their home range but it's not like they come back to the same thicket or right even this drain hardwood draw or whatever it is huh um 
It doesn't seem to be any rivalry. You would, th- you would think that would here. happen, right? You would think Adele would be like, yeah, learn this is from my the success. And be like, this That's is my what spot. I was saying. Just like a bed. Yeah, this is my secure spot. Yeah, when the when the gun pressure gets on, or in the South Carolina, when the when the hounds start wailing through the spur, through the swamp, Buck's that like, buck here's knows, where I lay. Yeah, here's where I go, and I know that I'm not going to get pushed out. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting when you start. To, so, I mean, the things that we do know, though, um, uh, you know, obviously, is that at least in your area, John, if that fawn is born in the latter half of the fawning season, odds are it's dead. It's 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 in trouble. Um, so the earlier it drops, the more chance for survival it has. Right. So if we looked at that, if we say like eighty uh, percent of the fawns in a given cohort are uh, killed by coyotes if we um, carved out the ones that are almost 100 percent guaranteed to die in the later half and we looked at only the front half of that breeding is it closer to 50 percent survival in that front half good question i hadn't looked at it broken it out i'm picking i'm picking at uh, details out of that but i'm just just thinking in terms of that earlier breeding group you know look at that as an individual cohort versus the whole fawning season you know i would assume that you know it's it's higher than 20 we know that if if most of the the fawns are getting eaten at the the end point that front half may be closer to 40 or 50 percent yeah you know maybe maybe that's where the swamping is happening you know that there's only so many that they can they can handle or at the same time they're having pups so they're not as active i don't know something could be correlated there starts to get overwhelming from from a deer manager standpoint you know it's like man there's, well, it, could, it's, it's, it could be so many things it's it, defeating as a deer manager because as a deer manager i'm taught to shoot all the coyotes i can trap all the coyotes i can and put all this effort into it and frankly it may not yield anything for me yeah <laughs> i mean that's yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that I know spend a lot of time and money either running trap lines and or hunting or sp- buying $5,000 thermal rifle scopes to kill every coyote. This It's not making a difference. It might make you feel better and sleep better at night, but scientifically, what, what, it's not likely making a difference on your deer herd. What is the... Uh, go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, if, if somebody is putting forth that effort and feels like they're seeing a difference, um, and if, especially if they've got some evidence to, to back it up, like recruitment rates from a camera survey, sure. I'm not saying it can't work. Right. Um, yeah. I'm just saying it's a steep hill to climb. Right now. We've seen it. We haven't seen it work. Yeah. 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 Well, what, what is the term for, uh, like the phenomenon that whether it's true or not, that the coyotes, like if you start killing coyotes, that they adapt and actually breed more or like their biology will tell them to have more pups. Is that a real thing? And what is that called? I'm not sure what name you're referring to, but it is a real thing that their litter size increases. Um, age at first breeding can increase. Um, the proportion of the, the female population that breeds can increase. Is there a so, term yeah, for they that? Can by cranking out more pups. Is there a what term? We saw, I'm sorry. Is there a term for that? What do you guys call that? Uh, compensatory reproduction, maybe mm-hmm. something like that. Okay. I'm not sure. That's what you're referring to. Sounds right. Well, everybody that you know likes to think they know something about coyotes is like, well, you know, if you kill them, like you know, they'll actually adapt and have more. And I'm like, oh, I, like you cut its head off and two form back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, That's probably what it feels about, like. 
we did see those all three of those variables increase when we started taking them uh, out. Taking out wow. But overall, because there were so few, because we, we took out so many breeding females, mm-hmm. um, the overall productivity of the population was depressed. Right. So even though the, the, the ones that were left had higher litters or, or bigger litters, mm-hmm. uh, there weren't as many litters being had. So there weren't as many being born. I gotcha. Now that makes sense. Hmm. All right. I'm just having fun with this one. What do you think would happen if you could contaminate as many fawns as possible in a way that any coyotes that ate them died? <laughs> I don't, I don't. <laughs> what, what would happen to the coyote population? That they died if they ate a fawn? Yep. Well, I mean, that's what we've been doing for 150 years poisoning coyotes with, uh, you know, predator control programs out west, for example. Mm. And the result is now we've got them not just out west, but all Wait. over the continent. They're, they're Interesting. They're, they're so, going to figure it out. It's yeah. funny you mentioned that. Jeremy and I picked up a lease in Ohio last year, mm-hmm. and we were out cruising a thing, and there was little, like, meat trays everywhere. You know, like you see at the you, – when you buy hamburgers, like the Tuvers – the top's clear plastic wrap underneath is a little black a little tray. foam yeah, foam yeah. Tray. we're finding them everywhere on this piece of property i was like picking them up i thought it was trash yeah, people littering. Littering. as the landowner was poisoning raccoons yeah raccoons yeah and everything else that ate it i don't know what <laughs> shoving his percocets in there or something but <laughs> i don't know man it's crazy though i mean because again if you um i guess it's kind of like the hog situation john i mean ultimately you know, h- how much effort and time is put in to try to go to shoot hogs and stuff. And, and you yet, know, they're everywhere, you know, and, and probably expanding in areas. Yeah, we're literally flying helicopters and yeah, these shooting every, everyone we can. Um, I've got a, I had a client in Alabama who had uh, a property high fenced on three sides and a river on the fourth. And every year he would take a, a helicopter and he'd shoot 300, uh, 350 pigs every year though. They didn't, it just kept filling up. They kept swimming the river and coming in. Kept swimming the river because the resources were there. They, they had food plots. They had supplemental feed. Like, for sure, we're crossing the river, not replicating. Yeah, for within. sure, no, because I mean, he was to the point where you couldn't find one at the end of the season, and then next year shoot three hundred fifty more because wow. they just moved in again. You know, it's that sponge effect, and and that's the downfall. Is like ultimately, if you're a deer manager who's trying to increase the habitat quality and deer quality on your property you can remove all the coyotes you want. They still want to come to your property because it's teed up to be the best resource for them. Hmm. Yeah. Talk about a productive animal. Yeah. Pig, you know, they have litters, six, seven, eight pigs and they can do it twice a year and they can do it at six months of age. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely an uphill battle and they are spreading mainly because people are spreading them, moving them yep. to new areas and have something to hunt. Um, but it turns out that we're, we're learning more about controlling them and you can do it. It like with coyotes, it takes a lot of effort and mm-hmm. expense. Um, and, and we're never going to get rid of them and certainly in areas where they're well-established, yeah. um, Southeast, but yeah. you can, you can do some good with controlling pigs. So John, I guess from a, um, let's just call it like a landowner situation, right? The guy who owns a hundred acres or a couple hundred acres. I mean, he might listen to this thing and think, well, you know, 
what can I do? Right. And, and I guess that is the question, you know, when it comes to predation, you know, and, and his population, number one, and I think you repeated it a couple times is that he's got to control his trigger, right? I mean that if he's wanting to affect his deer population, that's going to be the one thing he can control, uh, or she can control. But, but beyond that, I mean, would you still encourage them to be running trap lines and, and things like that to, to attempt to control the predator population? I wouldn't encourage it, but I wouldn't discourage it if they are so inclined and, and have the, the means to do it. Mm-hmm. I just would make sure they understood that it's not a guaranteed success. Yep. Um, and I would, I would urge them to, to do everything they can to improve the habitat. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, that's going to be your best bet is if you can improve the habitat, you've got the best chance, hopefully to that's what improve the deer. It. it seems like your, your time is better spent on the habitat overall. Yeah. On the habitat, you know, mm-hmm. the deer are going to benefit from it, from a food standpoint and a cover standpoint, alternative food sources for the coyotes, alternative food sources for the coyotes, you know, and yeah. 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 I think that's probably the move. That's going to be more effective than trying to kill coyotes. Hmm. Um, so before we wrap this up, John, I guess, uh, any new research you guys have going on down there at Savannah River site that, that might be of interest to, to any of the deer gurus listening to this podcast? Well, I've, I've touched on, uh, I, I mentioned that presentation I, I recently gave about the, the good mothers versus bad mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been doing some work on as far as pigs are concerned on, on influences of pig populations on deer. Mm-hmm. And that's not been very conclusive at, at this point. Deer certainly avoid pigs. We haven't shown any or haven't been able to show any um, detrimental effect of pigs on deer, other than the fact that you don't like pigs are going to get out of the way. Right. Um, It'd be the habitat this, though, right, John? Just like cattle. You know, I don't think deer dislike cattle, but certainly cattle have an impact on the habitat. And so they avoid those areas. Well, they both eat acorns, for example. Yep. So pigs and deer are competing for acorns mm-hmm. and, and other things. Um, but they do use the same habitat. So they, they're coexisting out there, uh, bumped into each other all the time. And it's seems from what we've seen so far, it's just a matter of deer sort of giving pigs their space. Sure. Yeah. I'm moving but, on. Any real detrimental impact on the deer. Hmm. You think they cross on the other side of the road, other side of the sidewalk? They do. They see For a pig sure. coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> step out, step out of line. Um, great. Well, uh, I guess hopefully we talked about, I don't think we were recording yet. We talked about Southeast Deer Study Group uh, this year in, in Louisiana, and hopefully that's a, an in-person event come February or early March next year um, versus what's been virtual the last two years but um no john we appreciate you coming on man and 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 shedding some light on some of the research that you found i know we get a lot of people talking about predation and coyotes on their property and and, you know it's a huge thing in this industry that's just been um continuing to build up um and ultimately you know again it's not to discourage anybody about it but you just you're gonna have to have some really realistic expectations on how impactful you're going to be um, with a gun and a, and a thermal scope on your property, calling coyotes and, and what that looks like from a landscape level impact ultimately. Right. 
Perfect. Uh, where can people check out any of the research publications and stuff um, for you? Do, do you have them on the Savannah River site website? Um, the Southern Research Station website. Okay. That's U U.S. Forest Service. Okay. Um, just Google Forest Service Southern Research Station and um, my name and you'll find them. Okay. Perfect. All right, Dr. John Kilgo. Well, we appreciate you coming on the Hunter Podcast, and and thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Cool. <laughs> uh, crazy, that man. I mean, think about that. I mean, I know he's talking twenty five thousand acres in that coyote removal. I mean, that's the the number that's sticking in my head. Over four hundred coyotes removed, and it didn't move the needle on survival. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make any sense. You know, it's still coyotes moving right back in and killing those things. I mean, that just and and again, if you think about like. It, we've all, especially it seems like in the last five years, it's like, oh, yep, there's a coyote in that field or there's a coyote in that field. But again, it's kind of like the buck, the big buck thing. Like think about how many coyotes you never get eyes on that mm -hmm. are there, yeah. that are out there. Um, and that, that kind of just continues to explain it in that, you know, we can remove all these coyotes from this area for three consecutive years and whatever coyotes are still remaining and have moved in still do the same amount of damage. Yeah. Regardless of if there's other predators and stuff. So. And regardless of habitat, you know, it doesn't matter if it's an edge or if it's an open forest. Like, and I think that's, you know, uh, hopefully people aren't listening to this and getting completely discouraged, but you, you know, it kind of goes back to you and I opening this podcast and saying, well, you know, I've, I've tried to do a little food plot, plot work and habitat work here because it's all we have time for. I don't have as much time to run trap lines and, and hunt coyotes as I'd like to. Um, but my priority is, is deer and deer management anyways, doesn't sound like it'd be worth it to, to sacrifice my time to do anyways. Uh -uh. Um, you know, if my goal was to kill coyotes cause I love to enjoy that, then yeah, go out and hunt coyotes, go trap coyotes, do that, that for sure. But if your goal is to improve the, the recruitment rate of fawns on your property and improve, improve your deer population and you're strapped on time, don't go try to kill coyotes cause it ain't going to help. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had some more clear answers at the end of it. Like, I, I'm not sure what you can do to improve it. it sounds like Habitat. Yeah, you know? maybe. I don't know. It's it's weird because, like... Craig Har Harper's ringing in my head like, just leave it go, just man. Just let it go. It's going to bring the deer back. Don't worry about the coyote. <laughs> um, That's how it'll be. But he's right, though. I mean, ultimately, that is the, the two things you can change. You can work and improve your habitat. And you can control what you shoot. Other than that, yeah. you can hunt as many coyotes as you want. You can run as many trap lines as you want. And again, if you did it for five, ten consecutive years, yeah, I think you'd make a dent. And you'd start to change things. And you'd see that via, you'd have to run a trail camera survey. You'd have to measure your fawn recruitment rates via that trail camera survey. If you're just doing it and saying, oh yeah, it's improving it, you're lost. You have to be collecting data. You have to be doing, that's when we, we you know, we've talked about doing a, a survey on your property forever. You have to run a survey year after year at the same consistent times each year to be able to see those trends. If you're not doing that, uh, or you're not looking at the reproduction rate when you shoot does and stuff, you, you don't have data to support an observation that says, yeah, I killed 10 coyotes last year and it made a huge difference on my deer herd. You don't know that. You have no idea. Hmm. It's just how it is. It is interesting. There's, yeah. Just another wrinkle. Hard, it's just hard to know, you know, whether it's. Now, don't get me wrong. If I, 
I'm hunting turkeys this weekend and I call on a coyote, I'm going to shoot it in its face. Sure. But to actively take the time to try to kill coyotes to improve my herd yeah. ain't going to happen. Mm -mm. It's it's not, I don't think it's worth it. Mm -mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just don't, don't stress yourself out trying to reduce mm -hmm. your coyote population. Just yeah, carry 22 with you and mm -hmm. take the opportunity when you, when you get it and, and work on your habitat improvement overall, just because it's, it. it's going to benefit Habit all wildlife and your experience on the property. I think the other thing is, is if you think that you don't have enough deer, like if you're truly concerned about it, habitat, number one, number two is don't shoot does or don't shoot as many does. Yeah. Those are the two things that are going to get you more deer on your property. Um, imp improve, improved habitat, less doe harvest. Dude, my, mine is still kind of, it baffles me a little bit because it's like, <clears throat> it's not the greatest habitat in the world by any means. Mm -hmm. You've been out to my place. Yes. Um, we have a ton of deer, a ton, mm -hmm. a pile, too many. Mm -hmm. I also have a ton of coyotes, mm -hmm. a ton of them. Every, every time I go out, I see coyotes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. And I'm sure they're taking a and, fair... And we shoot a fair amount of does every... We got, we're surrounded by Amish communities. They're killing well, does. I think it's because the one thing you don't ever lack on your property year-round is food. Um, and that that's probably going to keep a healthier herd, which is going to increase their normal reproduction rates. So sure, you're taking off some does. Some fawns are getting killed by coyotes. But ultimately, your reproduction rates are probably super high to begin with. So when you bring it down, maybe it's a 50% survival rate. Yeah. Because think of some of the areas, this isn't, you know, the south the southeast especially is extremely different than what we see in a lot of areas. Like if we take places in Iowa. It seems, like seems like a weird place. It is. <laughs> if, if you take places in Iowa, western Kentucky, Illinois, even in the in the really good ag country of Ohio, some of those areas in isolated populations, you may see reproduction rates of 1.5, which means every doe is having 1.5 fawns survive to at least six months of age. That's the recruitment rate, 1.5. Um, even if they start at an average of 1.5 and you've got coyote predation in there for 50%, you're still at a one. You know, John's talking about 0.2 where he's at. So it's it's a lot of the habitat type and quality and health of the herd, um, which I think ties into habitat, but it's because of soil fertility. Um, and then that gives you a baseline. If your baseline is one, let's say John's is baseline of one, well, yeah, 80% mortality by coyotes puts you at 0.2, yeah. right? If your baseline is 1.5, 80% mortality from coyotes puts you at a 0.7. That's three times the amount of fawns that John's seeing. So it, when you listen to this, you got to put yourself in the habitat. I would say that my um, Pennsylvania and my Kentucky properties are probably closer to John's Southeast mm -hmm. mountainous, not as much food, not as good as soil fertility. Um, you know, so maybe they're starting at a one and maybe I don't have as impactful of, of the coyotes that he has, but maybe it's now at a 0.5. My Ohio place is probably less than yours, but in between, maybe it's at one and a quarter your Ohio place may be at one and a half. So, you know, all of a sudden we may be down at 0.8 to one. Again, that's four to five times the recruitment that John's seeing. So that means we're recruiting four to five times more fawns into the population every year than, than he is in the Southeast. And I've done plenty of Mississippi and Alabama trail camera surveys when I've been in 0.2, 0.25 for survival rate. And so again, you know, when I say, hey, listen, we need to take some deer off, but it's not because 
um, you know, of your fawn recruitment, it's because you have too many deer to begin with, right? I want to take some off and bring that herd down. And I know you're only adding 25% of the fawns back in, you know, where most of the people in the Midwest and Northeast and decent habitat and decent soil fertility are, you know, even with a 50% or 80% coyote mortality and blackberry mortality or whatever else, you might be sitting at 0.7 to 0.8 to one. That's a lot of fawns still coming back into the population. Um, so, it, you know, when you're listening to this, think of where you sit and where your property sits in the extreme there. Um, and the only way you can tell is do a trail camera survey and, and usually July, August or September right in late July, but August, September are the two most likely do a trail camera survey, count the number of fawns to number of does, and then you have to unique the bucks, right? If you ever have, if you've never looked at a trail camera survey before, go to Mississippi state deer lab, search for trail camera survey, and it'll tell you exactly how to do it. You'll get a recruitment number. That's where we're talking about this 0.2 or 0.8 or 0.7 or 1.0. You'll get a recruitment rate. And do that at the, around the same time every year. And when you have two or three years of data, you'll be able to say, okay, every year it seems like I've got 0.4% or 0.4 fawn recruitment, which is a 40% fawn survival. Um, and now you'll, you'll be able to see. And if you're wanting to take coyotes off, now you have a trend to say, okay, I'm going to go and try to kill as many coyotes as possible. Great. What was that recruitment the next year? Still 0.4? Didn't change anything. Didn't affect anything. I think in Pennsylvania, black bears have a bigger impact than coyotes, 100%. And the problem is, is I can only take one black bear a year. And there's not that many black bear hunters. And the success rate for black bear hunters in the state of Pennsylvania is very low because we can't use bait. It's just go out there and kill them. Most of our gun season, those bears have already started to hit their dormancy instead of torpor where they're going under for hibernation. Um, so... If that is the biggest impact of a predator on my deer population, how am I supposed to make an impact on it? It's tough. At least with coyotes, I can shoot as many as I want anytime I want, including Sundays. So, yeah. Anyways, that's my rant. Yeah, no, it's just... Habitat and what you shoot is the only things that, if you want to take something from this podcast, invest in your habitat and do a camera survey so you know what you should shoot that's it that's what you should do yeah and i think just like appreciate what you have for mm -hmm. what it is i mean i'll be the first to say that Cause, there because it's tough to make a difference there are definitely times i've been in the deer stand that a coyote's come through and i don't even pick up the bow i just watch it because it's a cool animal to watch Get Should I kill it? I've never done that. I've shot every single one I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, I've watched them. I've just watched them go by because they're just a cool animal to see, you know. And yeah, if I kill that one, maybe I save a couple of fawns. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Apparently now here in John. That has been my motivator, though. It's not like I shoot them just because I want to shoot something. You shoot them because you all. think you're saving fawns. I shoot them because I think I'm saving fawns. Mm -hmm. Which well, and I'm again, I'm I not saying know. don't shoot them because again, sure. if I call one in for turkey season Saturday, I will shoot it. Sure, but there's been plenty that I've watched, and I I usually try to you know squeak them in, and if they don't respond, then you know I just watch them. I don't try to get worked up about it, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of guys that are very serious about it and and spend a lot of money to kill coyotes, and I think we'll listen to those podcasts and say you guys are full of shit. I know that if I kill 10 coyotes this year, it's well, going to say that we're not making a statement. We're just, <laughs> well, it, yeah. I mean, it's just, that's what the research says. Yeah. Yeah. You can kill as many as you want and it's probably not going to make a big difference on your deer, but they will think that 
if you ask them if they do a camera survey to prove it, the answer will be no. Because they don't, they don't do one and they don't have the data. Observationally, they think it's making a difference and it's whatever no. makes them feel and better. In fairness, those trail camera surveys are in question too, right? Um, if you do it consistently uh, at the same time every year or about the same time every year, um, it, it's not so much the numbers as much as the trend that you're looking at. Right, so the numbers are going to be ballpark plus or minus. But let's say you do three years of of those, and you look at your fawn survival rate. Then you start doing intense trapping and, and killing of coyotes. If it increases, then you know that there's an effect of taking those off. Sure, but that's only relevant for that time of the year when the survey is taken. Correct, because deer herds fluctuate throughout the year. Correct, massively. It's a snapshot in time. Yep, and and your recruitment is usually to get them to December, January. That's the six month cycle. Yeah. Well, and it just gets even more convoluted when you throw in the, the fact that, you know, most fawn, buck fawns anyways, aren't staying on your property anyways. Mm -hmm. And in many states, uh, they harvest a ton of fawns in antlerless season. Sure. Button bucks and, and doe fawns. Um, you know, I think what John was getting at there is that 80% that he was seeing in the, in the recruitment side was in that first two to three weeks, basically. They're, that's when they're killing all those fawns. Mm. You know, after that, it probably gets easier. And I would say, I would say once you get to that fawn being two months old, between two and six months, six months is what we call that recruitment phase, basically to where it could be part of the breeding population. Um, the number one predator is humans and hunting. Has to be. Because, I mean, I don't think coyotes are eating four- and five-month-old fawns. People are shooting four- and five-month-old fawns. As frequently. I'm sure they do. Either. But in that first two to three weeks, we're not shooting any fawns. They're getting eaten by coyotes. So. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah? Yeah, I'll take some time to process this one. Yeah, I don't. I mean, my goal is to continue to invest in the habitat. Habitat, habitat, habitat. Yeah, maybe even a better um, mindset to come away from this thing is like that. There just are some things that you you can't change. You, you can't know change. I mean? it just, you can't control. Yeah, and that's just got to learn how to operate in that infrastructure. I mean, that's life, dude. There's lots of things you can't mm -hmm. can't affect. So, yep, agree. All right. Well, we appreciate everyone listening to this episode of the Hunter Podcast 72 with Dr. John Kilgo um, of the Savannah River site talking about coyotes and deer depredation. And uh, I'm not sure what we got lined up next week. We don't have well, anything week, yet. I'm sure we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. You got something coming at you. But uh, we appreciate you all listening. We'll see you all next week. Later.